I'm Benjamin Wittes, Editor-in-Chief of Lawfare. And I'm Susan Hennessy, Managing Editor of Lawfare. You're listening to Rational Security on the ER podcast feed. For more of our columns and exclusive Lawfare content, read us at foreignpolicy.com. So tomorrow, do you have uh, an email you'd like to read with class? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, um, I, I think... A lot of establishment Washington has been enjoying this a little bit too much, but I can't help myself. Not enough. (laughs) Um, Last night, uh, Chris Hayes broke the story of two emails that were sent out to the Secret Service and White House security, the White House security distro list an hour before uh, Sebastian Gorka announced via the Federalists that he was resigning his post. Quote, resigning. Yes, unquote. quote, unquote. Uh, the first email was subject, staff do not admit. Please notify officers of the following staff do not admit. Sebastian L. Gorka, EOP, that's Executive Office of the President, Blue Pass holder. And then a half an hour later, another email, subject line, staff do not admit Gorka. Mr. Gorka, no, not Dr. Gorka, sorry, Seb. Mr. Gorka is more than likely Mr. still in possession of his PIV and the White House pass, as his do not admit status was performed without him being on complex. Ouch! Gold! Is there like a picture of like, if you see this man, <laughs> close the gates. But I want to I want to point out that he was on Fox News this morning talking about the reasons why quote, I resigned. Because if you say it enough times with enough confidence, people will believe you. This is his whole shtick. It's been his shtick his whole career. Yeah. So his, his, his next project is making sure the history is that he resigned. Look, I just want to say that, you know, I think that for somebody who is basically universally viewed as a joke among his peers and a charlatan and a charlatan that hanging on in the White House for six months is a real accomplishment. And Sebastian Gorga, I think you should be proud of yourself. You beat Mike Flynn. You beat Mike Flynn. Anthony Scaramucci. Priebus. You know, you hold your head high. Not coming in the White House. They aren't going to let you there. And I, I invited him on the Lawfare podcast. Haven't got a response, mm-hmm. but I meant it most sincerely, and I would love to have Sebastian Gorka, if you're listening, in the Jungle Studio for a wide-ranging conversation about all kinds of things. We have lots of areas of mutual interest. Including how you totally broke up with the White House that didn't break up with you. Yeah, I, and we'll discuss <laughs> those emails me, among, quit. A, among <laughs> other things. The best tweet I saw on this was somebody <laughs> observing that maybe he'd blocked so many people on Twitter that he didn't know he'd been fired. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, welcome to Rational Security, the No Morka edition. I'm Shane Harris, fake news reporter. We're going to miss Seb Gorka. Yeah, I, we're not going to have Seb Gorka to kick around anymore. <laughs> Actually, but we're going to have him. He's going to be constantly on the news. That's yeah, the problem. He he's like, he's going to go in the lecture circuit. He's going to make a lot of money. Yeah. Never going away. Does anyone know, was his wife also removed from DHS? No. I, don't, I haven't seen any reports. I think she's still there and... Um, Doing the Lord's work keep, against the CVE. He made an interesting, yeah, keeping the the country safe from CVE. He made an interesting reference where he said, uh, I can't remember if this was in a tweet or if it was in a statement, but that <clears throat> to Breitbart that he felt that he and his family could do more work from the outside than the inside, which made me think, wait a second, has 
Kathleen Gorka left as well, or is there now a uh, private public alliance that has been formed in the Gorka household around these a issues? A very interesting question. Something to keep in mind for to keep an eye on in the future. <laughs> Something to investigate. The Gorka family operations. I'm here in the Jungle Studio with my friends Tamara Kaufman, what is Ben Wittes, and Susan Hennessy. Hi, everybody. Hi. Hi. And we have a special guest this week. We do. A deep state denizen yes. has joined us uh, from an unspecified agency following a posting in an unspecified foreign country. So wave hello, deep state denizen. Hello, deep state. We're very Great glad to, to have, have you, you here. It's a, it's a full house today in the jungle studio. All right. This week on the podcast, Donald Trump was pursuing business in Russia at the same time he was running for president. Weren't they all doing that? Two cabinet secretaries distanced themselves from the president. And is it time for the House to start seriously considering impeachment? At least one rational security panelist thinks so. Plus object lessons. Um, let's start with uh, the news that I guess the Washington Post broke and then was followed up by the Times and also the Journal that uh, in the late period of 2015 into early January 2016, after Trump had announced that he was running for president, uh, he was, in the form of the Trump Organization, I should say, pursuing a licensing deal with a company in Moscow where they would build a building that would put his name on it following a pretty typical pattern that Trump does when he sells his name to other properties. Uh, it ultimately did not materialize, but not for lack of trying on the part of Trump and his associates. And we learned yesterday that Michael Cohen, the Trump Organization attorney, in a sort of maybe he would characterize it as a Hail Mary effort to get the Russian government to help get this process that was stalling moving along, sent an email to Dmitry Peskov, who is the head of press relations and sort of a right-hand kind of figure to um, Vladimir Putin. So totally normal, doing business in Russia, yeah, trying all, to enlist the Kremlin to help us. That way. <clears throat> Nothing to see here. Didn't materialize at all. Um, so obviously it's a pretty significant story, Ben, insofar as this now does uh, more than suggest. It demonstrates that while the president may have not had business dealings in Russia. He was certainly pursuing business dealings in Russia when he was seeking the White House. Yeah. So I think there's two uh, distinct and important things about this story. And I'm going to treat it as one story, though uh, each of the Washington Post, the New York Times, and the Wall Street Journal all add, have added facts to it over the last 48 hours. But let's treat it as a single single story for present purposes. Seems to me there's two things that are important about it. The first is this is yet another set of contacts between people in the Trump orbit and uh, people representing the Russian government uh, or people close to the Russian government. And that comes on top of, uh, I mean, the list is getting long now, right? Everybody and his mother's meeting with uh, uh, um the Russian ambassador. It comes on top of that meeting uh, in which uh, mysteriously uh, Jared Kushner seems to have tried to create a back channel right, to the Russian state. Uh, uh, it comes on top of uh, the meeting in Trump Tower um, in which uh, the child of the president uh, tried you know, took a meeting to get dirt on Hillary Clinton. It comes on top of the attempt uh, by this junior staffer, pa uh, George Papadopoulos, to schedule a meeting between Trump and Putin. 
that didn't come to anything. And it comes on top of additional efforts by another staffer to, uh, uh, you know, to to connect the campaign and uh, and the Russian government. And that's before we get to the story that you uh, Shane broke, which is the bizarre set of connections between uh, 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 Peter Smith and and uh, and possibly the more institutional Trump campaign. So, I mean, what we're seeing emerge is a remarkable pattern of direct communications and indirect communications that would, frankly. Uh, uh, make any intelligence agency really scratches its head. Uh, the second area and what I think makes this story different from the prior ones is that this story does involve a direct ask by the Trump organization of the Russian government. That is, it's not through some intermediary. It's a lawyer representing the Trump organization writes an email to Dmitry Peskov. And by the way, that's the same Dmitry Peskov who the other day was quoted uh, by Sputnik saying that I'm not a real journalist and the attorney uh, and the and Putin shouldn't fight me. Well, you are defrocked. I am. Yeah, <laughs> and, and so I just want to point out that Peskov's hands is in all parts of this story. <laughs> um, He's coming for you. He's man. coming for me. Um, you know, this was a situation where somebody representing Trump wrote to this press uh, spokesman for uh, the president of Russia and asked him to intervene to make a business deal happen and in the middle of the campaign. And that's extraordinary. So I think one of the, like, I think sort of the the most significant thing, because I'm, I'm not sure that this is it's sort of it's, it's another shoe falling, but is is not exactly a bombshell revelation. Right. He does reach out to Dmitry Peskov, but he uses like the generic sort of, you know, press at Kremlin kind of kind of address. And, and so it's possible to read the evidence as saying, well, you know, there was there was intent, but maybe there wasn't the kind of um, very close access. But it's just what un, what unbelievable liars these people were. Um, you know, the, the Russia issue was a major issue towards the end of the campaign. We had lots and lots of conversations as a nation. And President Trump addressed the country and made a series of factual statements. I have no business with Russia. There's no no connection with Russia. I have nothing no to do with nothing Russia. Nothing to do with Russia. His campaign surrogates, his kids, the people who eventually would take senior positions in, in, in his administration. They went on national television. They went on rally stages. And they made these representations to the American people. And all along, this was going on. And so the thing that's just that's so incredible to me is to sort of rewind the tape and, and look at the representations that they were making at that moment and look at what they knew, what we know they knew. And even if, you know, this is not some nefarious thing, it's not a huge criminal conspiracy, to me it is a, just an utterly shocking scandal that you can have a lie, just a demonstrable, verifiable lie on that scale, and, and somehow we're not seeing sort of the accountability mechanisms kicking into place. I think that's exactly right. It's not... Um a slam dunk. It it doesn't seem to have anything to do with collusion over the campaign itself. Um, but it's the duplicitousness. It's the the dishonesty and the the sort of insistence upon it at every step of the way 
that's so striking. I think the other thing that came through to me from the reporting and then from the emails of Felix Satter, this uh, Russian-American intermediary um, who was kind of talent spotting, I guess, or opportunity spotting for the Trump organization, um, is that even if Trump himself or his own lawyer um, were not, you know, thinking about connections between business and Russia and this incipient presidential campaign, their intermediary was and was writing very explicitly about how it's great to do these things together, uh, to do business in Russia and, and elect to, Trump and we're president. Going to get him elected, yeah. right? And that doing business in Russia would help get him elected right. president. That's the, that's the key. And so, you know, it's. I think that all that underscores the point that you're making, Susan, that, you know, there's simply no way that these guys. Well, I just didn't remember meeting the Russians or the Russians have nothing to do with this campaign. You know, when they're getting emails like this from a close uh, business partner, it's simply um, not credible for them to make those kinds of claims. And so, I, you know, hypocrisy is normal in politics. And the public, of course, already knew that Trump liked Putin and was interested in doing business in Russia. So in that sense, there's nothing shockingly new here. Precisely what's upsetting about it is that it's not new. It's so consistent. It is so but much a facet what, of the way he Ben pays. wants to jump in here, but I just want to key in on 1.2 before you do, which is that I think you pointed to Sater, Felix Sater, who has this longstanding relationship with the Trump organization, even though Donald Trump claims that he couldn't pick him out of a lineup. Although he had an office in Donald Trump's office. At one and point. a business and, card and for the Trump organization. Correct. I mean, to me, the, the, one of the more fascinating and just deeply intriguing statements on the part of Felix Sater, who is not a nobody, uh, both in Russia and in the Trump world, is this statement that, and we're going to get him elected, and right. clearly indicate, more than indicating, saying that the business opportunity we are pursuing is going to get him elected. That needs to be more explained. That doesn't seem like a casual reference. That strikes me as something that he said with some backstory, perhaps in mind, it just that that's you know yeah, I, that's I where actually, I'm going next. I actually <laughs> I actually disagree with Tamara that this may be unconnected to the collusion uh, suggestions. I mean, let's let's tick off the sequence of events, right? In the fall leading to January of 2015, leading to January 2016, the Trump Organization is actively pursuing a deal for a Trump Tower in Moscow that the broker for the deal, Felix Sater, specifically says this is going to cultivate relations with Putin and get Trump elected. Uh, in that period of time, Trump is repeatedly asked to call Putin what he is, which is an authoritarian murderous dictator, and he repeatedly refuses and says nice things about Putin. That even as the deal falls apart, Putin starts saying nice things about Trump, and they develop this very public bromance all through the period of the Republican primaries, toward the end of which... We have this spree of other contacts that include the Russian government through this uh, lawyer um, uh, coming to talk about adoption with a promise that uh, to get the meeting that this is part of the Russian government's support of candidate Trump and his presidential campaign and promise to deliver dirt on Hillary Clinton. That meeting does not produce 
dirt. But shortly thereafter, the Russian government, having hacked the DNC, unloads the material to WikiLeaks in a fashion that, in fact, is quite damaging to Hillary Clinton's campaign. Now, I don't think you have to be a crazy conspiracy theorist to ask, is this an isolated, unrelated series of events that all happen to involve the Trump campaign, the Trump organization, Donald Trump personally, and people close to Vladimir Putin. And by the way, at some point in this, Felix Sater arranges for Ivanka Trump literally to sit in Vladimir Putin's chair, right? Or is this a public, semi-public and private dance of... uh, a sort of mating ritual between these two uh, these two entities and public figures in which that leads Vladimir Putin to decide let's screw Hillary Clinton and help this guy and I think that is just not an implausible question to be asking at this point you know i'm not I'm not going to disagree with any of that i I think that we still face two questions to which we don't yet have the answers. One is, even if that was Putin's play, was it Trump's? Um, And the other is, you know, do the American public and their representatives in Congress care enough to do anything about it? Well, that's a different question. I I agree with you. That's the mother of all questions. But I do think if you're analyzing factually, what does the emerging pattern of contacts, what story does it tell? I think it's important to look at them all in the context of one another, rather than to say, oh, this happened months earlier, it's probably irrelevant. It was the Trump organization, not the Trump campaign, it's probably irrelevant. Um, I think we're looking at a pattern a long pattern with a lot of data points of flirtation between Trump and Putin. I mean, and it is sort of the, um, you know, we've talked about a little bit before, but the proverbial boiled frog, that hearing it all at once really is overwhelming. But because we have sort of this slow drip, 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 you know, new story every couple of weeks, it, it becomes hard to fully appreciate the magnitude because the story is being visited upon us relatively slowly. And it's only one of you sort of step back and look at the full pattern that really becomes just astonishing, overwhelming, unbelievable. It really, it, it suggests that when um, Bob Mueller is ready finally to make his report, it's going to be, it's going to require an act of narrative crafting to make sense of this all for yeah. people and for members of Congress and uh, in a way that's meaningful. Um, and we'll talk more about some of these issues in the third segment, but let's talk next about um, what was a pretty remarkable pair of statements. I thought actually there were three statements, but we'll talk about two in particular in the past few days uh, by Rex Tillerson and Jim Mattis, in which both of them seem to pretty clearly put a lot of daylight between themselves and the president over the issue of his response to the violence in Charlottesville. Um, Tillerson was on Fox News Sunday, and Chris Wallace asked him whether or not Trump's response, and we don't have to relitigate that, but made it more difficult for Tillerson to represent American values, and do you think that it was more difficult for the American 
for America to represent these sort of values of inclusiveness and civil rights. And uh, Tillerson responds by saying, look, I've had, you know, I've talked to the State Department about our commitment to values and how we will go on expressing them and representing. <laughs> Never mind that he denigrated that when he was speaking to members of the department at the beginning of his term in office. <clears throat> right. Maybe he's coming around. He may be coming around. This is that he said, you know, but then, then Wallace pressed him and said, but does the president saying that both sides share blame for violence represent uh, make it more difficult to represent American values, to which Tillerson replied, the president speaks for himself. Mic drop. And Chris Wallace, visibly stunned, said, are you separating yourself from the president? And uh, he, Tillerson replied, I've made my home comment as to our values. <clears throat> so there was that. Uh, and then also a, a video surfaced of uh, Jim Mattis uh, talking to a small group of troops. It's not clear in which country he was speaking with them. It was pretty informal. Uh, it looked like it was maybe shot on a phone. Where Mattis says, uh, our country right now, it's got problems we don't have in the military. You just hold the line until our country gets back to understanding and respecting each other and showing it. The power of inspiration, we'll get the power of inspiration back. Uh, add to that, Gary Cohn, the economic advisor, telling the Financial Times that the Trump administration had not done nearly enough to repudiate white supremacy and anti-Semitism and had lots more work to do. Um, so these are two cabinet secretaries or two national security chiefs, as it were, really taking a big step back from the president. And I mean, you could, as this was coming across on Sunday, some of us in the newsroom were even looking at it saying, is Rex Tillerson saying that the president of the United States does not speak for the United States? Tomorrow, what do you make of it? Well, so first of all, I, I think that whether you're looking at it as a matter of constitutional or legal authority or as a matter of um, symbolism and messaging, of course, the president speaks for the United States. Of course, the president speaks for the executive branch. And that's precisely what made Tillerson's statement so extraordinary. Um, it's also precisely what made the president's statements so damaging. Um, and that's why Tillerson apparently felt compelled to say what he said. Look, I don't think that any of these guys is speaking out of um, deep uh, principled conviction. Well, I don't want to say that they're not at all. But if that were their primary motivator, one could ask why they took the job in the first place with a man as unprincipled as as President Trump. And they knew what they were getting into. So I think that what's going on here is, um, well, I think there are a couple of possible interpretations. One is we've seen reporting around, you know, discussions between Kelly and Mattis and potentially Kelly, Mattis, McMaster and Tillerson being a sort of um, coalition trying to constrain some of the worst instincts of the White House on foreign policy and national security affairs. So one possibility is that this is kind of action in concert to contain the damage abroad of the president's statements. Um, another possibility is that each of these guys individually is making an assessment of what's required for them to remain effective in their jobs as long as they stay in their jobs and that there's a certain amount of distancing that they need to do in order to be able to speak credibly themselves. Um, and part of that calculation is that he's not going to fire them over it. Uh, and frankly, I think that's probably a pretty, a pretty good calculation for them at this point. Um, it would create another crisis. It's not clear he could get anyone to replace them. It's not clear that if he could name people to replace them, that they would get through the Senate. And so I think they've, you know, Madison and Tillerson are probably making a pretty decent bet 
uh, right now that they can separate themselves, give themselves a little more room to act um, and get away with it. The question I have is whether it makes any damn difference, frankly, uh, for their effectiveness in their jobs. Um, and then finally, I'll just make one sm- side point about Mattis's statements. Um, we've talked a lot on the show about civil military relations in this administration. And, I, you know, I found it a bit troubling, although, you know, I appreciate the sentiment he was expressing. Uh, I know uh, colleagues of mine who worked in the Defense Department found it more troubling the extent to which Mattis was saying, look, we uniform military folks can be the guardians of American national values while the rest of American society is all screwed up. There was a little Praetorian guard element of that that made me uncomfortable. So this is actually sort of the topic I've been in my column for this week for foreign policy, um, right, sort of Mattis and Tillerson's comments and, and what it means. And I think, Tammy, is it, her, your point about um, that they they don't think they're going to get fired um, is is exactly the, the right one. Either they don't think they're going to get fired or they don't care if they're going to get fired because – uh, you know, our our column is really about sort of the like death of the unitary executive and that we really aren't supposed to be seeing this happen. You aren't supposed to see cabinet and subcabinet officials contradicting everything that the president says. The president is is supposed to be the executive branch. Um, there are all kinds of, of positive reasons for that. And, and that this really isn't an argument about what kind of authority is the president should have, um, which is a long-standing sort of ideological debate, but really is about whether or not the president can effectively discharge his authority, which is not a controversial subject or, or hasn't been a controversial subject. And so this sort of well, on one hand, um, I, I like I think most people in this room, welcome what we're seeing, which is responsible adults standing up and speaking on out on behalf of American values. Um, uh, there is sort of an element of uh, that's disturbing about it, and that's that <clears throat> this isn't the way the American government is supposed to function. Um, this isn't the way this is all supposed to work. And one of the reasons why um, we do have this sort of tight unitary structure in which the president is the head and everybody else is just sort of the arms and limbs is because of accountability. Because whenever one person has all the ultimate power, one person has all the ultimate responsibility. And right now we're in a situation in which we don't know who to believe whenever people, whenever Trump versus members of his cabinet say things. And I think ultimately that does risk creating a situation in which the American people also don't know who to hold ultimately accountable for a decision and that the real question and the one that we you know pose in this column is is you know whether or not this is occurring just as kind of a feature of the trump presidency um or if this is actually kind of the changing nature of the office right he's going to 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 fundamentally alter the nature of the american presidency so i want to say i mean my head has a i have a lot of thoughts on this subject and i'm going to try to Try to a treat whole only, book's worth of thoughts, yeah, as a matter of fact. <laughs> try to be, <laughs> try to be disciplined and make only one of them. But uh, first of all, uh, I, I do think it is really worth pausing over just how offensive uh, this set of behaviors is to the very notion of a unitary executive. And I say that as someone who's delighted that it's happening. Um, but we got to keep in mind the idea that this really isn't the way the presidency is supposed to work. And when the presidency s- says something as an expression of his values, the secretary of state does not get to say the president does not speak for me. Um, 
And that that is just never that should just never happen. And it's a mark of the degree of dysfunction that this executive is is seeing that not only does that happen, not only does Nikki Haley go on every uh talk show and contradict the president on every issue of foreign policy, but that we actually cheer whenever it happens. That's a really weird situation. Number two, it is a situation that is entirely driven uh, or largely driven, almost entirely driven, as Tamara says, by the, pres- by the perception that people will not be fired. And uh, the the unitary executive is a function of the president's appointment power and the collateral uh, uh, ability to remove people from office, that you you have to follow the president's orders because he will fire you if you don't. And Trump is a supposed tough guy, but everybody has picked up that he's actually a wuss and he actually won't fire people. And the most dramatic example of this, and by the way, the one that's most clearly principled in contrast to Tillerson, who did, as Tamara says, make the bed and and lay in it, uh, is Chuck Rosenberg, who's the head of the DEA on an acting basis. And when the president went out and said, um, you know, that it's okay to uh, smash heads together uh, when you arrest somebody, uh, Chuck Rosenberg sent an email to the entire DEA that said, no, it's not. And that was almost immediately leaked, I believe, to the Wall Street Journal. Um, and, uh, you know, he basically said, this is not a reflection of our values. And, and notably, he's not a Trump appointee. He is not a Trump appointee, and he was not removed. Um, and And if you do that over and over again, as staff, you know, as senior administration officials have, and nobody gets fired for countermanding the president's orders, then the unitary executive takes a big beating. Boy, um, let's use this actually then to segue into our third topic. This feels like a natural kind of point to do that. So, Ben, you and Jane Chong wrote an essay in Lawfare <clears throat> this week, it was on Monday, which I encourage everyone to go read. Um, saying that it is now time for Congress to begin a formal impeachment inquiry. Um, You don't have to go through every chapter and verse of the argument, but essentially I think you sum it up in the end when you quote Justice Joseph's story, saying that impeachment is not limited to crimes of a strictly legal character and that has what he says is a more enlarged operation and reaches what are aptly termed political offenses growing out of personal misconduct or gross neglect or usurpation or habitual disregard for the public interests, various in their character and so indefinable in their actual involutions that it is almost impossible to provide systematically for them by positive law. And you and Jane summed up by saying this is a near-perfect description of Trump's wide-ranging abuses and the challenge that now lies with Congress. The order that the positive law is unable to provide is now its to impose. So I jump from where we were to this because there is a process for addressing the behaviors that Tillerson and Mattis and Rosenberg and Cohen and Nikki Haley, et cetera, seem to be are clearly responding to. And why do you all think that now is the moment for the House, the Republican House, to formally take that up and start organizing what you see as those offenses in a way uh, <clears throat> that leads to the question of whether to form articles of impeachment? So it's a very interesting question what the date was on which – 
I would have said, well, a reasonable member of Congress should be thinking in the language of impeachment. By the way, that's different than saying the reasonable member of Congress would vote to impeach, but that the the mental rubric in which you're thinking as a member of Congress who takes your oath of office seriously has to be, should we think about, should we impeach the president? So I've actually believed that for a while, um, but I was have been struck recently, particularly in, in the wake of Charlottesville, by how few elected officials, frankly, of either party, are talking about it in this language. And so, you know, my view, at least since the revelations around the Comey um, firing and the obstructions of justice leading up to it, uh, was that this was something that Congress should be thinking about. But I've been really struck after after Charlottesville when when there's this sort of universal condemnation of the president's behavior as raising a question about the fitness of him to lead morally, whether you know that that the 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 known vocabulary for such discussion, which is the impeachment clauses, don't really figure in a serious way into the conversation except in certain hashtags. And so my point is, if you have a serious question as a member of Congress about the president's fundamental fitness, there is actually a vocabulary for that. And there is actually a known process for thinking about that. And we should trigger those and talk in those terms. And then that raises the question, uh, should we have uh, fundamental questions about the fitness of the president for office? And the answer to that question is, duh. <laughs> so I, I think it's a great essay and it's very persuasive. And I don't disagree with its with its arguments i do think as a political matter you're you are suggesting that one branch of government should take an interest in preventing the um dysfunction in halting the dysfunction and preventing the weakening of a, another branch of government and of course that's the way the constitution is designed that's why we have this um these impeachment clauses and that's what we would wish uh public-minded members of congress to do um but as a political matter you know um it's an interesting question whether it's what what they want to do uh be the republicans because they are republicans and this is a republican executive um and the democrats because at least some of them maybe i don't know about the elected ones but a lot of activists think it's better to have the trump administration crash and burn and 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 fail and destroy things because that means democrats will be elected ever after or at least that's the theory whereas you know who has the interest in in halting this decline, um, it's those within the executive branch. I mean, from a political perspective, and you know, Shane, you mentioned uh, earlier before we started taping that this, these Tillerson and Mattis statements raise the question of the Twenty Fifth Amendment. Ben, you raised the question of fitness in office, and that's what the Twenty Fifth Amendment's all yeah. about. Well, the Twenty Fifth Amendment's about disability. Trump is many things. I don't actually think he's disabled. Well, I, don't you think you can actually take – I mean I think you would probably – if I were to pull your various arguments on this front, including way back when Trump was inaugurated and you said, let's face it, the guy has a clinical problem. 
Um, well, that was a year before he was inaugurated. That's true. I guess that was. I, I described in March of 2016 <clears throat> evident clinical symptoms. Evident clinical <laughs> symptoms. Yes. Um, you know, I, I think that there's there, look. There's a, there's. It's easy to imagine a world in which people openly debate what the idea of disability means and whether there is enough flex in the 25th Amendment to actually use it in the way the same way that during Watergate people had a discussion about impeachment, which hadn't happened since the days of Andrew Johnson. And no one, we were in totally new territory in that respect. And people, you know, members of Congress in a fairly bipartisan fashion, which you don't have now, came to some agreement about what impeachment was. And you guys write about Charles Black's sort of handbook for this in, in your essay. I would actually, I would argue that in the scenario we're in now, neither the 25th Amendment nor impeachment is likely, but the 25th Amendment removal option is more likely than impeachment. Why, so I think that So I actually think our, our colleague Molly Reynolds um, has written uh, a little bit about this, actually, sort of um, the, the calculus of members of Congress to remove a president of their own party and sort of the the political or the politically realist answer is that they only make that decision um, when they are either concerned about losing their own seats or whenever they're concerned about losing control of Congress. Essentially that they decide to impeach or investigate or take action against a president of their own party when it is worse for them not to and the costs of not acting are higher for them and that it really is a pretty craven calculation um, uh, on both part of the House and the Senate. And so I do think that um, it's all ultimately connected, right, as we see those approval numbers coming down, as he does crazier and crazier things that make larger and larger parts of sort of the Republican electorate feel deeply uncomfortable, um, but that ultimately... The relevant metric here is not that 60% of Americans support impeachment. And the relevant metric is not even how crazy it gets. The only relevant metric is how scared is each individual Republican member of Congress for his own electoral prospects or that of his caucus. And, and they are not scared enough yet. So I, I want to hear Shane's argument for why the 25th Amendment, while unlikely, is more likely than impeachment, because I think we can all understand why impeachment is unlikely. Right. I think that and I, <clears throat> I've thought that for a while and I feel more confident in that prediction, although if that is, again, both of these are remote possibilities <clears throat> after hearing Tillerson and Mattis. And I think there's a, a growing body of evidence that suggests that these men may, in fact, see themselves as buffers between chaos and a functioning government and might actually be the kind of people who would come forward and entertain this possibility. I just think that in the Republican House of Representatives right now, there's zero political will for this. I do think if by some happenstance, Republicans did vote to impeach him or the Democrats took over the House in 2019 and voted to impeach, I think a Republican Senate would be likely to actually remove him because I think there's more of a building bipartisan consensus around Trump uh, in the Senate than there is in the House, but it just it seems almost in, in, in unthinkable that House Republicans, led by Paul Ryan at this point, even with all that they have seen, would vote to impeach the president. We haven't seen the level of outrage and concern that you have clearly seen in members of his cabinet who would have to come forward and engage in this extraordinary uh, effort to remove him again too very remote i mean I, the fact that i think impeachment is almost impossible i put 25th amendment just a little more likely than that i, I think neither is going to happen but i think the conditions are actually 
well, it's a smaller more, the requisite conditions. Are, it's a smaller <laughs> number of people, and I think it's just it's more likely given. Uh, what we've seen in the reactions that people have had to all the things that we've been talking for the past eight months that the president has done. So, look, I I don't disagree with you as a political predictive matter about what's likely. I will say this. If you ask me as a constitutional matter, should the cabinet invoke the 25th Amendment, I think that is extremely dicey territory. Yeah. Uh, if you ask me as a normative constitutional matter, should the House of Representatives be thinking in the language of impeachment, the answer to that question is obviously to me yes. Right. And so I think, you know... And actually, and actually a politically more palatable and safer route to go right now. Oh, well, I, I, and the I mean, most, sure, yeah. the most. If you put a gun to Washington's head and said Twenty Fifth Amendment or impeachment inquiry, obviously you would choose the impeachment inquiry. Well, and and of course, if given the option, I think everyone would prefer to see Trump voted out of office. That's the most legitimate, the most stabilizing. Well, and, and his supporters exit. would. Let's be clear too. That is the route that I mean everybody I think right. would favor is there being an election because and, if you remove by Twenty Fifth Amendment. Who knows how well? The and the other, would remember, Twenty Fifth Amendment is temporary removal, um, and so it's it's as a you know assuming it were appropriate and constitutional to do, which I have real doubts about. Um, it doesn't actually solve the problem. I mean, you know, you you he's still the president. He's just not acting as the president until he, you know people sort of declare him fit again, whatever that means. It puts you in a very, very difficult sort of palace coup kind of environment. Um, look, th the right answer to this problem is the impeachment process. And if, if you are right, and I suspect you are, that Congress is not able or willing, we can invoke Ashley Deeks and the <laughs> unable or unwilling test, uh, um, then the right answer to that problem is to demand it of them as a democratic uh, 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 expectation matter. And if they don't deliver, to replace them in a year with people who will. And, and you know, the, the right answer is not to revert to a shortcut constitutional process that was not designed for this situation. Remember, uh, Donald Trump is not crazier than he was when people voted for him. I mean, I think that's actually a really, really important point that this is not this was all on full display and he was elected. And so whenever we think about the appropriate mechanisms, even impeachment, that this, you know, there really is an expectation of there has to be new information. There has to be yeah. some sort of of new understanding. Otherwise, you know, look, his, you know, I could shoot someone in Fifth Avenue and people would still vote for me. And Maybe we had right. a set of information <laughs> yeah. about Donald Trump before the election. He was voted into office. Right. And, th and that, by the way, is why nowhere in that piece do Jane and I talk about grab him by the pussy or any of the many things that I would think of are as impeachable offenses that Trump committed before being elected president. You get a pass on all of that stuff for impeachment 
purposes because the re- because the people get to price that into the vote. But if that's vote. the case, then doesn't that mean that anything he may have done to collude with the Russians to swing the election is off? No, no, it's whether we knew about it or not. It's whether voters knew about it when they voted. And I think that's that's the point. Is what's if there's stuff stuff that is <clears throat> uncovered since. And then, of course, he's doubled down on it by firing Comey and so on. Those are acts that compound things that were hidden before the election. And just to bring it full circle, I think that's why the original stories we were talking about are so important. Because it was lies about information that was known before the election, which sort of invalidates the principle that, well, it was before and therefore it doesn't count. Right. Impeachment is fundamentally about offenses committed in office that make the perpetrator dangerous in office. And, uh, you know, the 25th Amendment is about the state of the person, right? Whether it's that he's been shot. But and not is, the nature of the person. Right, but not the nature of the person to the extent... Hold that, on, though. What if, I mean, and, and now I'm, I'm going to sound like I'm being flip here, but I mean this in a serious way. What if the president then just goes out tomorrow and just starts speaking in absolute gibberish on the podium. So I... I, I and, and, and is evincing signs of some kind of a mental breakdown. And then the next day, no, I'm fine, I'm fine. And then he starts tweeting, kefefek, and it's going back and forth. You know what I'm getting at, I am. I do not... I'm not arguing that under no circumstances could mental disability be a basis for a But how would you diagnose that? I mean, I don't know the answer to that question. I know for sure that Trump has engaged in conduct that a reasonable Congress should be evaluating as a matter of impeachment. And so I think the 25th Amendment stuff is really dicey territory. I don't know what the answer to it is. The impeachment stuff, I know what the right answer is. What if he launches a preemptive (laughs) strike on North Korean nuclear facilities that all of his advisors have cautioned him against and 100,000 people are killed as a result? He's, then he's violated international law, potentially. Right, but he's still the president, and he gets to do that. Well, I, guess, like, I guess what we're getting at is that, is that with the 25th Amendment, I mean, it may be that you need to be visibly like incapac- in a coma for this thing to trigger, right? That, that simple, like, that going was, stark raving mad doesn't count. So that was certainly the issue that gave rise to it. Remember, the 25th Amendment follows the Kennedy assassination, and people rightly got worried, what if he hadn't died? Right. What if he'd right. just been shot and was in a coma and, you know, was still the president? There's no mechanism for turning things over to Lyndon Johnson in that situation. That was the situation that gave rise to the, the, the 25th Amendment. It wasn't really about what if the president is a frickin' nutcase. Elections and have by the way, we may y'all. need a second a constitutional amendment to think about that problem because the 25th Amendment actually doesn't do a very <laughs> oh, good job with the, it. The, the polity is definitely equipped to take that on <laughs> right now. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> All right, let's move on to object lessons. Um, I'll briefly do mine. We had a, in a sign of things to come, the moon blotted out the sun in Washington <laughs> recently. The sky darkened. The sky darkened. The birds sang, sang their night songs in the middle of the day. Uh, I know the eclipse is like totally over, whatever, but I'm going to brag because my husband took the most awesome photos of it. Here's one. Wow. wow. Not good. That, is that looks like NASA quality. I think in one of the shots, he may have actually photographed the space station. I think we should crossing use the sun because yeah. it did that. Yeah, it did that. Like, there's the you can compare it. It did a photo bomb on yeah, everybody's totally eclipse photo. Yeah, totally photo bomb that. Um, but this was yeah, he put a little filter on the lens cap, and it was just 
It was delightful. Beautiful. He's just so talented, that husband of yours. Yeah, when When's the apocalypse come comes, show? I'll grow all the vegetables and he'll document it. <laughs> <laughs> When's he going to come on the set. show? He should totally come on yeah. the show. That'd be great. Talk zombies. Oh, that would be We good. should get him and Dan Dresner on the show. He's not allowed to contradict me. <laughs> <laughs> it's a unitary marriage. <laughs> You're on my territory now, pal. Uh, ben, you have objects? I have an object lesson after action report. Okay. So last week, uh, as listeners will remember, I talked about uh, uh, Spaceman Eddie who had sent me a, a, baby, a baby cannon pin. I think it's Spaceman Ed. Um, sent me a baby cannon pin. And impulsively, when after I had received it, I ordered a hundred of these pins, thinking I was as one does, as one does, giving, thinking I would give them away to uh, people as thank you gifts for you know support of lawfare and that sort of thing. And then over the weekend, uh, I had this brainstorm that maybe I should just tweet out, "Hey, donate to lawfare, and I'll send you a baby cannon pin." And so I had ordered 100 of them. We got 300 uh, donations uh, and before we had to cut it off. And so I uh, just want to say, first of all, big shout out to Spaceman Ed for, uh, for uh, making me think about what we could do with uh, baby cannon pins. And secondly, uh, thanks to everybody who uh, donated to Lawfare. And we actually have to wait to send you your pins uh, until we get the new order of pins <laughs> because uh, we didn't have enough pins. That uh, pin but, factory is going to be happy. Yeah, they're yeah. going to be real pleased with us. So, uh, But we're very grateful to everybody who uh, who did the joined the Hashtag baby cannon society. And I was on Morning Joe this morning uh, talking about impeachment and wearing the baby cannon pin. Nice. So. It's a very attractive I, pin, by the way. It is. I have to say I'm really glad that you decided to do this donate to lawfare and get a pin thing instead of becoming one of those guys who hands out the lapel pin to everybody he meets. Thank you for doing it. We that. could just attach it to your business card. That could be your thing. <laughs> I could just like give out pins, like mm-hmm. like yeah. Ed Koch used to say, "Hey, how am I doing?" Yeah, like, hey, you know, here's a baby <laughs> pin. Here's a pin. pin. <laughs> I would become insufferable really fast. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of the podcast. Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find our show archive at Spaghetti on the Wall Productions dot com. You can follow us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. But Ben's not going to send you any more pins. Well, he might send you. No, but if you want to give a donation to Lawfare, you know, (laughs) anyway, uh, there's a no pin. The support page at Lawfare uh, welcomes you. Whenever you download the podcast on Stitcher or Instacast or Apple or there's probably like other ones that I'm not even aware of. Wherever Google you Play, it. Google Play. That's right. You Spotify. can get Spotify. Spotify does podcasts now. Go to all of these places, like Johnny Appleseed, spreading your five star reviews. Let a thousand <laughs> flowers bloom. Other mixed metaphors, weird illusions. To Who history. did our music this week, Shane? Do it. Our music was performed this week by Sebastian Gorka and the Do Not Admit. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. No, actually, our music was performed by Sophia Yan. And speaking of sound, special thanks to our sound engineer today, Matthew Kahn, and to our special guest from the Deep State. So glad you were here. Do you have any words for us, Deep State? (laughs) Head shaken. I think we all got the message. (laughs) (laughs) 
on behalf of my good friends, Ben Wittes, Tamara Kaufman Wittes, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you for listening. Bye. <laughs>